On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking to Ontario Liberal leader and former Minister of Transportation, Stephen Del Duca, about the Auditor General's report that points at Hamilton's LRT and some issues there. Stick around for that one. And Dr. Laurel Trainer. We're talking about music. We know music can help develop a youth brain, a young person's brain, but can it have the same effect by refreshing, if you want, an older person's brain? She's an expert in this. And Donna Robertson joins us talking about outdoor games and the effect athletes can have and lots of other stuff. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The Auditor General came out with her report today, her annual financial report. Now, this is different from the Auditor General. If you're thinking, wait, we just had an Auditor General report. Yes, we did. This is different. This is the finances that she does every year. The other one was a special Auditor General's report for COVID-related stuff. Um, You'll recall that one created a bit of a flap because those in the Ford government were saying, wait a second, you're not a medical expert. You're an accountant. You're a forensic accountant, do forensic accounting, those in the other parties were saying, see, look how this party is and this government is running things into the ground. It, it, it you know, it caught a lot of people sort of by surprise because it's not what they expect from the Auditor General. This though, today, this is exactly what people expect from the Auditor General. It is a deep dive into finances, a deep dive into finances. And there's lots of stuff in there that will be gone into here on this show. And I'm sure on Bill's show in the days to come, probably tomorrow morning, Bill will have something on this and Scott Thompson will have something. You'll hear it a lot of different places because there's things there. There's, as usually is the case, there is meat on the bone. But for now, I want to concentrate on one particular issue. That would be the Hamilton LRT, which found its way into the Auditor General's report, as well as a number of other Metrolinx and LRT-related issues. This is what Bonnie Lissick wrote. Uh, now, she wrote a lot. So I'm. this is one tiny, tiny bit. You can go and find the whole thing. It's a, it is a full evening's read, let me tell you. She wrote this. We found that the 2016 and 2018 estimates did not represent the full cost of the LRT, speaking of the Hamilton LRT, and were significantly understated. These estimates were not made public at those times. Based on a detailed review, we found the $5.5 billion cost estimate reported by the Minister of Transportation in December 2019, when the project was canceled, was reasonable. Now, you will remember probably that situation. Carolyn Mulroney, Mulroney, Minister of Transport under the Doug Ford government, came to Hamilton and announced that the LRT project was kaput. And the reason was because the billion dollar LRT, which is the number we have heard for as long as this thing has been going on, pretty much, that's the position that has been taken forever. That's what counselors have chatted about and argued about and debated about. That's what citizens have argued about. That's the number. I mean, it's become such a part of our vernacular here in the city that when you talk about it, it's the billion dollar LRT. That number Though, according to Bonnie Lissick, according to the Auditor General, a billion dollars was way, 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 way understated. And in fact, that number, the $5.5 billion Carolyn Mulrooney brought to Hamilton and used when she canceled was reasonable, was the argument. Now, here is where you start getting into all kinds of accounting. You know what they always say about accountants? You can make accounting look however you want. But the argument is... Well, one number 
is for capital building, for building the thing. The other number is building and operating over a period of time, 30 years. And so you're going to have difference of opinion on that, who's right, who's wrong, who got it right, who's way off, who's not way off. That said, even within the capital, even within the building part now, the auditor general says the number is up at least double that. It's now at least a $2 billion project, at least a $2 billion project. We're not talking about a billion dollar LRT anymore. And so more money has to be found. And so why was none of this said? And this is one of the things the auditor general points out. Does it matter? Well, the auditor general seems to think so. Does it matter? I think probably city councilors who were debating this and the mayor probably think it matters. If, if the province, if under the Kathleen Wynne government, the province was simply going to keep raising the amount they were willing to pay, and it seems like that, that was happening, then you could say, well, who cares? Except we do live in a country, in a province where there is a democracy, and a democracy means there's an election, and an election means you could have a change of government. And if you have a change in government, you could have a government come in and look at the books all of a sudden and think they are paying for a $1 billion project and suddenly see the number being talked about here as something like three point, I can't remember the number exactly, but by the time it got to about 2018, it was at 3.5 or $3.9 billion. And this is what the government was saying we would cover according to this report. So what we have here is the Auditor General saying the government, the Wynn government with Minister of Transportation, Stephen Del Duca, did not tell the city of Hamilton or the public that the costs were rising. And that by the time Carolyn Mulrooney got her hands on the file and came to Hamilton in December of last year to announce that it was being canceled, that $5.5 billion that she cited that caused people to go apoplectic because they said, there's no way this is a $5.5 billion project. How, how did we get from a billion to $5.5 billion? By the time that happened, yes, that was a reasonable number, according to the Auditor General. Uh, joining us now, the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, Stephen Del Duca, who was Minister of Transportation back under Kathleen Wynne when this was going, when this was really all we talked about here in the city. Mr. Del Duca, thank you for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, back when Carolyn Mulrooney came to Hamilton in almost a year ago to the day now and uh, came here and canceled the project, there was criticism from all kinds of corners, from the mayor, from other parties, from you. Um, you. You called her numbers fake math at that time. Based on the Auditor General's report today, is she owed an apology or something else? No, not at all. In fact, I stand by the comments that I made back at that time. I think what to me was the most disturbing today was that when Doug Ford had an opportunity to level with the people of Hamilton and be honest about why he chose to cancel this project for Hamilton and Hamiltonians, he chose instead to lash out and attack other people, me included. So I think that's a real shame. I think he missed an opportunity to demonstrate he's a real leader. And, uh, you know, I believe Hamilton needs transit badly, and I believe and I stand by the comments that I made at the time. The Auditor General, though, points to the fact and says, but the numbers that y your government was talking about were not very real, at least, I mean, as early as 2016, they didn't align with the billion dollars that we had heard of. Is she wrong? 
No, so the way, if you look at every single signature transit project that I was proud to uh, champion and announce when I served as Minister of Transportation, so not only the Hamilton LRT, but also the Here Ontario LRT in Mississauga, the Finch Avenue LRT in the City of Toronto, frankly, no regional express rail, which will positively impact the entire region. All of those projects were announced and processed in the same way that the Hamilton LRT project was. Uh, remember, these were all the announcements all took place prior to competitive procurement, uh, before we go out into the marketplace and try to get the best kind of value for taxpayers with the bidding process. And so they were all down the same way. The question for me, and this is what Doug Ford has not yet answered, is why has he chosen to proceed with Mississauga's LRT, Toronto's LRTs, Go Regional Express Rail? The only project that he chose to cancel was Hamilton's LRT. I don't know why. He obviously made that decision. I What's think your guess? What, what? I think, you must have I a think guess. It's politics. I think it's politics. I think people, perhaps in his caucus, uh, some of his MPPs and others, never supported this project. They convinced him to move in a different direction. Time is being lost, and I think that's time that the people of Hamilton would have needed more invested in transit for their local needs and for the regional needs. And so that's a shame. I just wish Doug Ford would come clean and be straight with the people of Hamilton and the people of the GTHA about why he made this choice. In the Auditor General's report today, one of the things, one of the, the criticisms that is leveled is that the that your government and you should have come to the public and should have come to the city of Hamilton and let them know that these costs were going up and going up and going up. Was it a mistake not to do that? Was it a mistake not to let everybody know? Even though, as you say, you're doing the same thing in these other with these other projects, is it a mistake not to come forward and say, here's what these are now. It's no longer a billion dollars. No, so a couple of things. A, I do think consistency is important. And as I just described a second ago, that, that is how we approached building transit across the region. And secondly, and I say this, look, as a resident of Ontario and a taxpayer, before you go into the market to competitively procure or price a project and have people bid on that project, you're not going to start off with telling the whole world exactly what you expect to pay. You want market forces to compete. You want those bidders to drive the value for taxpayers. That's why we approached every one of these projects the same way. Again, the question is, why did Doug Ford single out Hamiltonians and say, no, you don't deserve it? Mississauga residents do, Toronto residents do, the region's residents do when it comes to GO, but you're not going to get your project. And look, I support the other LRTs in GO RER. I'm the guy who championed those. I'm the guy who announced those. I also announced Hamilton. And I think people in Hamilton have really been changed by Doug Ford. And I think, I mean, your point is well made, and I think it is absolutely a question that given the opportunity, I'm hoping that people are going to be asking the Premier and his uh, transportation minister about why Hamilton. But let's get back just because while I have you here, uh, the the reason I keep coming back to the billion dollars is because, and you know this well, you're the one, as you say, you brought this in. Um, in this city, the LRT has been talked about as a billion dollar project for as long as it's been around, it never seemed to change. And around the city council table, the concerns about cost were always there. The billion dollars, are we going over a billion? What happens if we go over a billion? If that had been known that there were things that were being looked after, yes, prices are going up, but don't worry about it. The city's not going to be necessarily on the hook for it. Would that not have changed in your mind and your belief how some city councillors or how people might have looked at this as a project? Well, look, it's hard for me to put myself in the position of how city councillors might have looked at the information. What I know is that when I served as minister, and I was the one who did announce the Hamilton LRT, I was I was keen to make sure that we were in regular touch as a government with 
mayor and, and when the chance arose with members of council. So I think I think a lot of the due diligence was happening the way that it needed to at the time. But there were discussions that were yet to be had this when I was serving in that role regarding how some of the costs 5, 10, 15, 20 years out, which is what, 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 you know, what we do internally when we look at the entirety of the project, the life cycle costs, the escalating cost of dollars, procurement costs, which, by the way, is what the Auditor General included in her complete and total calculation today. Uh, you know, all of those conversations would have been happening and would have continued to happen. You know, I know that there were members of council, including one who's now an NDP member of parliament representing part of Hamilton, who were really insisting on delays during this process from the council's perspective, which, you know, in any major transportation project, when you have excessive delays, it's going to have an inflationary impact on the final cost. Having said all of that, I know that we dealt with Hamilton and Hamiltonians the same way that we dealt with every other resident across the region of the GTHA who needs better transit. And it's how we, you know, how we proceeded in Mississauga, it's how we proceeded in Toronto, it's how we proceeded across the rest of the region. It's how we had done it for years. It's how Doug Ford's currently doing it, by the way, when he talks about the transit projects he wants to build over and above what we had already announced. He, he has singled out Hamilton. I think it's a really important message for your listeners to understand. Doug Ford is basically saying the people of Hamilton are second-class citizens in this region when it comes to transit. And to me, that's unforgivable. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mr. Del Duca, just before we get on to some other things, you raised something right before the break that I found fascinating, and I'm glad you raised it because I wanted to ask you about it. Back in 2017, I think it was midway through the year in 2017, it appeared anyway that our council was moving towards signing off on this. And then it was raised that we want to have the HSR, the local transit authority, running this rather than Metrolinks. Had that not happened, had that change not come, is it your belief that we would have shovels in the ground right now and a project would be underway and construction would be happening? Did that delay it to the point where it's not happened? Well, look, I mean, anytime we introduce what I think was, I want to say, a seven or eight month delay from what I recall, anytime you introduce that kind of major delay, in a large-scale infrastructure project, you're obviously a you're going to make you're going to make it more expensive. Time is money, um, as it relates to building building transit or other forms of infrastructure. And so, for sure, the delay was not helpful. I'm not sure what the motivation was behind the the former city council, who's now an NDP MP, um, Matthew Green, I think it was, uh, and others on on the council who decided that they wanted to go in that direction. Not helpful at all. I will say, if Liberals were still in power after 2018, like the projects that we've seen proceed. Uh, here, Ontario and Finch LRT and Go Regional Express Rail and quite a bit more across the region and across the province. I believe that those projects would have proceeded. And if I was in a position to do something about this, I would continue to work closely with Hamiltonians and with their council and with the business community in the region to make sure we actually provided what the people of that incredible community deserve. But Ford's gone in a different direction. Do you, very specifically, do you believe the number is accurate? Do you believe the $5.5 billion, there's been lots of controversy about that. Do you believe that number is an accurate number? So it is, it's hard for me to say with absolute certainty post-2018 what additional costs would have been built into this project because I wasn't in a position to know. I can see that prior to 2018, like all of the other transit projects that we were delivering on for the entire region, when you take into account initial construction costs, which is what we used as the announcement placeholder back in 2016, 
reflect the cost of procurement, the entire life cycle maintenance required for the infrastructure asset, in this case an LRP, plus the escalating cost of dollars over a 20 or 30 year horizon, yes, of course, the final number will have been larger than the $1 billion that we first announced in 2016. Again, I just want to ask how we did it across the region. Hamilton wasn't unique for us. It has been sadly unique for Doug Ford because he's picking on Hamilton and Hamiltonians and, again, decided to single out that community and recklessly cut a trend of project that I think is needed. So let, let's say that we're going to have an election at some point again, and uh, let's say you become premier. Is this back on the table in, in a Del Duca government? Is the LRT in Hamilton, even if it is $5.5 billion, is it back on the table? Look, I don't know where we're going to be as a region as it relates to the transit system by the time we get to 2022 and beyond. I think throughout my time as minister and now as liberal leader, I have stressed the importance of getting shovels on the ground, putting people to work to build the projects that we need making sure we have a seamless and integrated transportation network across the whole region. But I also believe it's really important to work closely with local partners, not override councils, um, you know, not tell business owners and residents in a particular neighborhood that I'm sitting in Queen's Park and I'm from Vaughan, but I know what Hamilton needs more than Hamiltonians now. So I think it's really important to work closely and take a close look at what the system across the region looks like come 2022. What I do know is that, again, Doug Ford singled out Hamilton. He recklessly cut the project. And here's the worst part. It's been months since he made that reckless decision, and he's not replaced it with anything else. He's not come back to the community and said, look, Deluca had it wrong. We're going to build something better for Hamilton. Here it is. It's been a lot of talk, been a lot of hot air, been a lot of platitudes, not much action for the people of Hamilton, and that's disgraceful. Well, he, I mean, he has said that the city will have a billion dollars towards a transit project of some kind. Um, do, do, you, do you believe that's coming, or, or are you skeptical of that? I was going to say, as he, as he also said, the text and the mail, because I don't think Templetonians have seen a single cent of that money come through so far. So right now, it's a lot of talk. I just have to go back for one second and we only have a minute or so left here and I wish we had a lot more time, but to go back to the auditor general's report. And, and one of the things that she keeps highlighting is that, and let me read one quote and it's, it's from 6.4.2 in case anyone wants to go and read it. If they, if they really have nothing else to do this evening, <laughs> um, the province did not communicate any budget updates to the public or to the city of Hamilton after the original 2015 announcement until the fall of 2019. I'm just struggling to find out why that would be. I know, as you said, I know you've said this is how it's done, but I'm struggling to understand why as the numbers are going up, the city, the mayor, the public wouldn't have been alerted to the fact that these numbers were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So my sense of it is, my sense of it is that not only in Hamilton, but in the other communities that I've talked about, the Metrolink, the provincial agency that would have been working on the project directly, would have been in consultation or perhaps with municipal bureaucrats to talk about the scope of the project as it was going forward. Uh, I think that would have taken place, I suspect, in Hamilton, like it would have in Mississauga, Toronto, and elsewhere. It doesn't mean that a, uh, a public pronouncement would be made about those escalating costs. And that, again, is mostly to protect the taxpayer. Before you go out into the marketplace and do your procurement, you want to make sure you're driving the very best value for taxpayers. And then you announce a final number once you know what the contract is going to be. That's what we did because you've got a successful bidder. It's what we did with the other projects that I've been referencing throughout this interview. So everything else to me coming from Doug Ford, just a smokescreen. He has been, he's been caught singling out Hamilton. He's being caught being reckless on this. He's being caught having no real plan for transit in Hamilton or for Hamiltonians. And so he's flailing and he's lashing out at me and he's talking about other people who are responsible for this. 
but Doug Ford is currently the Premier of Ontario, and the buck stops with him. Stephen Del Duca, Ontario Liberal Leader, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it today. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because, look, depending on who, where your politics lies, um, that last comment, yeah, the buck stops with Doug Ford, and there are people who are going to be listening saying, absolutely, he's the Premier, he cancelled it, his fault. There are others who are going to be reading this Auditor General's report and saying, but wait a second, the Auditor General is saying there was an awful lot of stuff happening under the previous Liberal government that, you know, maybe the buck should stop there. Look, I, I, I don't pretend for a second that anyone listening is going to change their politics based on this or the interview or anything else. You, you, you are going to blame who you're going to blame. It's just interesting that that is where Bonnie Lissick has pointed her pen and her accounting. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Read a story in the spec the other day that I found really heartwarming. Um, it was about a number of students, McMaster students, who were involved in something called Music, Health, and the Community. And it's a course that teaches these university students about music's impact on the brain with a focus on older adults. And what it was, was a placement project of sorts that connected younger adults, the students, with seniors and connected them through music. And they would do Zoom calls, Zoom sessions, and they, again, would, it was a music thing that they they talked about, that they communicated through. And it got me wondering about something. I mean, besides the fact that it was just a beautiful thing, because you suddenly got all these people who potentially during COVID are alone or lonely or whatever, and now they've got some companionship and something that they are passionate about. But it also got me thinking a while back, we had a researcher on the show. I'm talking months and months and months ago now, who was talking about how children and teenagers in particular who involve themselves in music more than just listen, I'm talking about playing music, taking lessons, that kind of thing. They get higher grades than those who don't. It's got an impact. It's got an effect on the brain, on shaping the brain. And it got me wondering, what about seniors? Clearly they're past the point of grades and school and all that kind of thing. But can you, through music, could you reshape or sounds like a crazy word, but refresh a brain almost by making it more active? Dr. Laurel Trainer is the founding director of the McMaster Institute for Music and the Mind. She joins us now. Dr. Trainer, thanks for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Um, we know, at least I think we know, anywhere along here when I say we know, please correct me if I'm wrong in assuming something I think I know, but we know that people, as people age, their brains age, obviously. Um, and, and what I mean is that there's an effect. There are There's a reduction in gray matter, I guess, is how we typically think of it. Um, can doing something like playing music or being involved in music have an impact to reverse that in any way or slow that in any way or change that in any way? Well, yes. In fact, there's a fair bit of evidence now that music is one of those activities um, that can keep your brain active, uh, can ameliorate some of the effects of, of dementia. So there's other activities, you know, doing crossword puzzles, playing chess, even just social interaction. Uh, is good for your brain, but but music is definitely an activity that that is good for that. Why? What what is it about music that works? Well, I'm not sure we completely understand that, but 
Music is a pretty unique activity if you think about it. It engages our perception. Obviously, we have to decode all the patterns of the sounds coming in. Uh, it's cognitive. It, it uh, makes us you know, think about things. But music goes beyond that. It's also very emotional and social. So music, um, you know, elicits uh, sadness in us or it can make us feel happy. Um, and along with that, it's also a very social stimulus. I mean, usually we experience music with other people. Um, you know, recently, in recent history, that's changed a little bit because of uh, recorded music and we can now listen alone. But for most of human history, music was something that was predominantly done with other people. And we have quite a lot of scientific evidence now that uh, engaging in music with other people has uh, a lot of benefits. Let's go back for just a second uh, to the what you were talking about a moment ago, all these different facets of things that are happening when you're playing music or even listening to music, the emotion and the patterns and everything else. That sounds like you would have an awful lot of different parts of your brain that were all firing at the same time. Exactly. So music is a stimulus that really activates the whole brain. Uh, and even when you listen to music uh, and you're not actually moving to it, so you're not dancing or even tapping your foot, the music still activates motor areas of your brain that control how you move. Uh, so that's pretty incredible also. Um, and I think it, it uh, speaks to the power of music that it's not just about sound, but music is uh, what we call embodied, which means that it really uh, affects our body and how we move and, uh, and so on. So if you just listen to music and we measure your brain, these motor areas are activated, uh, particularly for rhythms. And so what that means is, you know, when you listen to music, you want to move. That's why we dance to music. It's why we tap our foot to music. And so it not only activates auditory parts of the brain, but really activates the whole brain. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just before the break, doctor, we were talking about the, the fact that you've got all these different things, emotions and figuring out patterns and all these other things. Are those parts of the brain all firing independently? Or are they all interconnected when music is playing, that one thing is tugging on another, is tugging on another, and sending bolts to another part? Yeah, that's a very good way to describe it. Yeah, all those areas are interconnected. And so music is a stimulus that even if one part of your brain isn't perhaps working optimally, you could get in through another pathway in the brain. Uh, there, are, there are studies now showing that people uh, in later stages of dementia who may mm -hmm. not even recognize their own family members anymore, and they may have even lost most of their language. Yet when you play the music that they, especially music they heard when they were, say, a teenager, they will become alive, and they will start connecting with people and making eye contact um, and really responding to the music and, and uh, just become almost like a different person. Uh, so music really does have this, this power um, to to connect us. Uh, I find it interesting that music, you know, very, very young babies are responsive to music. It's as if it's one of the first primal things that mm. we respond to. And at the other end of life, it's one of the last things to go. 
is that because as we listen and perform and partake in music over the years, we build almost bridges in our brain and connections. And so when one is stimulated, then even if the other is dead for the lack of a better term, you're talking about, you know, late stage dementia or whatever, that it can still, that bridge, you can, you can, you can almost wake it up a little bit because we remember the connection that was there once upon a time. Yeah, that's a very good way to describe it. So, you know, the brain is very interconnected and there are many pathways into a particular function. And so if you can't get in one way, you might be able to stimulate that area of the brain by getting in through a different pathway. And so music just seems to be a great stimulus that way because there are so many pathways that, that it affects in the brain. And and what's interesting to me about this is that you would think that other things would do that. I mean, if you show up and read someone who has dementia or something, a, a favorite passage from a book they read a hundred times or, or even showed photos from a photo album, but you don't hear of the same response that as you've described, where suddenly I saw a story, I don't know, a while back of they, they would put headphones and play old music from their childhood. And as you say, suddenly someone who hasn't spoken in months wakes up, it seems it, it doesn't happen with other things. Well, maybe not to the same extent. I mean, it still does. Talking to someone with dementia is, is beneficial. There's no doubt about that. And it can bring up memories and so on. But I think what's really special about music is its connection to, as I said, the motor system, to movement, to emotions, to cognition, to social interaction. You know, many uh, people's fondest memories are actually experiencing music with other people at concerts. So music just has this ability, you know, more than perhaps some other stimuli to evoke, the, evoke those memories and, and really sort of wake up the system. So, so let's go back for a second to sort of where we started this. And that is, I, I, I believe you wholeheartedly, we've seen evidence of it, of those things you're describing, but is that something that is helping to rebuild a brain or whatever other word you want to use, refresh, I think I used or whatever, is that doing that or is it? just for that moment having that impact can you actually do anything to reverse the ravages of age through music if you do it enough yeah that's a great question and and the answer is probably yes we do know for example from cases where people have had a stroke um, and say they've lost uh, the ability to um, speak um, through music, through putting speech to music and rhythmic training, uh, people's ability to speak can come back to a certain extent. So that's a case where using music, we're able to, um, I don't know if we actually repair necessarily the damaged areas of the brain, but allow the brain to reconnect other areas that may not be damaged and that, that can now at least do some uh, language function. So music is a way that it that it can affect the brain, and you know the brain remains plastic throughout life, even when it's deteriorating, perhaps. Uh, and and so if you can make use of that plasticity, and music is a good way to do that, you can actually improve uh, certain aspects of of uh, functioning. Yeah, because it's it. You would think theoretically that as your brain ages and you're less uh, plastic that you should have a tougher time with music as that you need more parts of your brain all working in concert to make that happen. You would think that an older brain wouldn't work as well, but it sounds like it goes the other way that it makes it work as well. 
Well, you may not be working as well, but that doesn't mean that the, the music <laughs> is not benefiting you, right? Everything is relative. Well, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, mine, I'm sure my brain isn't working as well as it once was. In fact, I think a lot of people would tell you, no, it's definitely not. We know that for a fact. Uh, but but you yeah, you know what? Well, but it's it's always amazing to me. It, they're like either a smell or a sound. If you hear a particular song, you will have, you can almost smell something. If there's a, If there's a song that you heard once upon a time at a key moment in your life, it's almost like that song will lead to other senses firing up because of things that are connected to it. And so I can only imagine that it, it kind of is working the same way in, in, as you describe, in an older brain where it may not otherwise be working, that you can connect other things to it and make it work. Absolutely. And, and music, it, you know, these are very powerful emotional experiences that we have to music. Uh, in, and, and as you say, in particular instances, so we have, you know, particular memories of things that happened and the song that went with those those occasions. And those are very, very powerful. So if you can, you know, if you take, say, a senior and you play some music from five years ago, it may not mean anything to them. But if you play a song from when they were in their 20s that had a powerful meaning for them, that's the that's the stimulus that will help wake them up. So we don't necessarily want to play them Drake. Play play something <laughs> from you a few years ago. Dr. Laurel Trainer, founding director of the McMaster Institute for Music and the Mind. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. How is it that cotton candy seemed to be an essential food group when you were a kid, but now you're an adult? there's really not much desire to jam cotton candy into your face for most of us. I would think anyway, I, 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 once upon a time, cotton candy may as well have been an essential food group. And now, no, it's like cream soda, cream soda. Does anyone who's not a kid drink cream soda? I mean, Ben's got his hand up right now. I cannot recall the last time I had a cream soda. There are certain pop flavors that apparently are only for kids or at least primarily cream soda and the other one, which I try to have once a year, just it's kind of a tradition, although I don't really know why I do it. Grape, just to have one can of grape pop. And I do it only to remember what a can of absolutely pure, highly distilled sugar tastes like. <laughs> it is the most sweet thing on the planet. Every grape can of pop should come with a syringe filled with insulin. It is, that's how sweet that stuff is. You drink it, you go, okay, now I know why I don't drink a lot of pop anymore. But once upon a time, I'm telling you. So for your kids, National Cotton Candy Day, probably one of the three most important days of the schedule. Wish them a bet. Wish them a happy one and see if you can find some in the house. One other thing though, if you have cotton candy just lying around in the house, you're a bad parent. I'm just going to say that for the record. If you're saying, oh yeah, we've got a closet full of cotton candy, just in case you need to start working on the diet for your kids. We'll get to that later. Monday evening, time to bring in Don Robertson, known, well, one time citizen of the year in Dundas, uh, owner and operator of ComChoice Realty and of the Dundas Real McCoys and known purveyor. Well, I don't know if he's a known purveyor. Are you a known purveyor of cream soda or no? I've had it. I'm kind of like you and the grape thing. I'll do it. 
once in a while, just, you know, it's like going and having a Big Mac, and I love the taste, but it reminds me about an hour later that it, the taste is the raw, <laughs> and perhaps I should uh, back off. So yeah, I find the same with Coke. Event. Yeah, I find the same with yeah. Coke. I like Diet Coke. Cause it, but regular Coke to me, and look, everyone has their own taste, but to me, regular Coke is just like pouring syrup down my gullet. I'll take the, the less sweet stuff, but you know, all right. All right. Um, hope you're well, hope, uh, hope, uh, you know, we're getting close to Christmas. Hope you got all the shopping done for Sue's. Hope the new car is safely tucked away with the big bow around it in the neighbor's garage. So she doesn't know about it yet. One thing about age is you decide that there's no point in trying to sort out gifts. We just have a quick chat and do stocking stuffers because oh. if you want want something, you generally go get it. Or otherwise, you just buy a whole bunch of stuff that gets put in the back corner and ends up at Value Village in two years. So that's true. I am not not equipped to determine what she should wear. You're a wise man. Walk. <laughs> wise what man you want yeah it uh-huh. comes with age it comes with age you make enough mistakes you go you know what as smart as i'd like to think i am i am one dummy so let, let me make a recommendation for you don you know what Suze would probably yeah. really love and what would probably make her really happy and feel special this christmas buy her a vacuum cleaner well, you know, I, I thought last year of the room, in case she wanted to slip over to the store, was a good idea. So I'm thinking the vacuum cleaner would be in the same category. So, you know what, yeah, why maybe. don't you try that, out, try that out at home and tell me how it goes. See, I was, I was hoping you were going to be the guinea pig, but uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> no. we'll, we'll see how uh, that works. Some listeners that have tried both those, neither of which are probably very successful, so. Now, years ago, true story, when I mentioned about the car with the bow, years and years ago, when I was a kid, a neighbor asked my parents if they could put a car with a giant bow on it in our garage for about three weeks before Christmas, because he was giving it to his wife for Christmas. And we did. And all I remember, I was, you know, as a kid, Don, it was back in the day when road hockey was the thing. And I played road (laughs) hockey nonstop. And my parents were in absolute fear that somehow I was going to fire one of those hard frozen solid orange road hockey balls and bust the car somehow. So I had been threatened within an inch of my life that the garage door was to stay closed and I was not to go within arm's length or arm's reach or anything else of that car, Uh, which I didn't, by the way, and it was a lovely gift and all the rest, but... um, People do that stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed. I've never bought my wife a car. Maybe that's, maybe that's the secret, a car. Maybe I'll, I'll try those that sometime. Orange, those, those orange balls have neutered more than their share of young men in January and February. <laughs> I can tell you that. Uh, uh, between, now, between a direct blow from the orange ball or running with your stick out in front of you and running into a oh. block of ice frozen to the road and driving it back into the package. Yes, there are, there are kids without children who can point to the day they were playing road hockey is the reason why. Now, let me ask you this, uh, partially knowing the answer. Did you ever play road hockey with anybody famous? Anybody famous? Yes, I did once or twice. Did you? Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Eh? Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I've played with, um, I played road hockey with Frank Mahovlich. 
and um, he was slightly better than me, also slightly older, but um, yeah, not, you know, I was friends with his son and, and he came out once or twice while we were playing in the dead end. And, and um, yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. Um, trying to think if anyone else was famous. Probably yeah, somewhere along the way. You, were. you are now. Um, the interesting, yeah. the reason, the reason I prod you with that question is because I think it speaks to the era and not just the era, but also the fact that hockey players and guys that love the game, they, the kid in them never leaves. And when a road hockey game breaks out, isn't it great to see them say, that looks like fun. Like I, you know, I just, I, I think it's great. And yeah, yeah, it was about a year ago. I saw a story about Sidney Crosby playing on a pond. He and his girlfriend are taking their skates and, he goes out and can you imagine a kid? I don't know where it happened. I think it was near Pittsburgh. Looking up, Sidney Crosby's joining your uh, pond hockey game. I mean, it would be. Mm. I just, it just. I, I think those stories are wonderful and, and should be shared widely. Well, years ago, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but at the Shadok Arena up on the mountain here in Hamilton, uh, Tuesdays or Wednesdays, I don't remember. Maybe it was every day of the week. They had um, parent and tot skates. They called it. And it was, I think, two bucks per person to go on. And you could go and for like two hours from 10 till noon every day or something, go up there and play. And so I was working a lot of evenings then. And so my son and his buddy who were, they were probably four, well, five, maybe they were partly in school and partly not. Um, we would go at least a couple times a week and we would often be the only people on the rink. So there'd be me and these two kids in their full hockey gear just skating around and learning how to shoot the puck and skate and everything else. And one day we're out there and I had no idea about this, but that was the rink that the Hamilton Bulldogs, when they were in the AHL, that was where their practice was scheduled. And I guess the person who was running the rink completely forgot that we were out there because there were only us. And so we're just playing around in one end of the rink. And all of a sudden we hear all these pucks hit the ice and guys coming on and probably four or five guys right away who later played in the NHL, were on the ice and you know what? They were great. They came over. I kind of just stood off to the side and got off and our, they skated and passed the puck and stuff with our kids for probably five minutes before practice started. And it was amazing. And, and you know what, it, Don, uh, we're sort of moving from one thing to another, but that was a, that and a couple other experiences along the way always struck me that pro athletes, particularly pro athletes, but big name amateurs as well, but pro athletes, I don't think many of them really understand the power they have to be impactful on, especially kids, that it takes seconds, seconds of patting a kid on the head or kneeling down and talking to them or signing an autograph or whatever. It takes seconds to make an impact on those kids. And those guys that day did it. Absolutely. I talked to our group, the real McCoy's, uh, usually early in the year, well, always early in the year. And say, you know, boys, like, you know, most of them have played in the American League, some of the National Hockey League, the East Coast League, and the OHL. They've played at high level. Guys, you know what? When you come off the ice, because as you know, J.L. Greitmeyer, the players have to walk through the stands to a certain extent to get to our room. If a kid standing there wants to high-five you or stop you and ask you something, this is your last shot at feeling good about yourself because, you know, <laughs> this is almost over with. And... I walked out of the dressing room one night and my cousin's daughter was there and said, um, and I was surprised to see her at the game. 
I didn't know her uh, son was a goalie who sat right behind Mike Mole every game. You know, every time they came, he sat behind Mike Mole, and the the kid, you know, high five Mike, and Mike stopped them. And so she waited for me because I was having a tea, and I come out afterwards, and and she just wanted to thank me, and I'm saying for, for what? She said, well, you know, my son comes and Mike Mole does this, always stops and talks. Tonight he come out and give him an autograph stick. And, uh, you know, I do understand, and I try and tell even the real McCoys, the impact they have. Now, sure. that was Absolutely. seven years ago, six years ago, and I ran into her this summer, and, and she smiled at me. She says, remember that stick? I said, yeah, it's still in his room. I get thinking, isn't that cool? Like it took Mike two minutes. Yeah. And I hope he didn't use a brand new stick. <laughs> I went and got a practice stick and signed up for him because those things aren't free. But you're absolutely right. The impact that these guys can have, even at the real McCoy level, the AHL Hamilton Bulldog, the OHL Hamilton Bulldog, the Hamilton Steelhawks, they got to stop and appreciate what it means to the little guy that's standing there. And I don't care. I could not care. Those are all great stories. Don, I couldn't care less if they walked by the adults. I really couldn't. I mean, that's fine. No. But if you've got a kid, and and I'll give you one more story. Years ago, um, when I was working, I had to cover a Bulldogs practice again when they were in the AHL. And I happened to be home and I got called out. And so I was looking after Caleb that day, my son. So I took him with me to the practice. And for whatever reason, he was never a goalie in hockey, but he loved there was a guy who used to play for the Bulldogs who before that had played for the Leafs and the Canadians, a goalie named Eric Fischow, who yeah. for whatever reason, Caleb, as a kid, maybe it was the name because he thought his name was Eric Fishhead. Um, maybe that was the hilarity of Anyway, he loved Eric Fischow and Fischow comes off the ice and sees Caleb standing there. And I didn't prompt this at all because I was talking to somebody else. I turn around and there's Fischow now down on his knees, on his pads, because he's a lot bigger, yeah. just having a conversation with my son, who at the time was probably four or five. And it was like, yeah, you get it. And you've been there. And yet there are guys who will walk right by. I will tell you, um, there was another time I had to do a similar thing. It was when the NHL teams were still coming to Hamilton for an exhibition game every year. And there was a big name NHL guy who will remain nameless, who Caleb had caught a puck and he had two pens, two Sharpies, a silver and a black Sharpie. And he sort of shyly holds out the puck to this guy walking by who he recognized and the two pens in both in his hand, the NHL guy takes the black pen and signs the black puck and makes no effort. Doesn't even look like just. And I thought, see, there's, there's the difference right there. You, you could have spent, there was no other kids around. It wasn't like he was rushing through 47 people. The autograph, you couldn't even see it on the puck after that. You could have taken 20 seconds. You're being paid millions of dollars. And instead you did the simple, easy way with, with nothing. And like, it wasn't about my kid. It was just the idea. It just, it, it shows you in very clear terms, the impact these guys can have and women and women for sure. I mean, someone like Kia nurse walks into a gym now, especially in the Hamilton area. And there are girls who she is the biggest thing ever. And Kia nurse is fantastic at doing this, by the way, I want to point that out. But if you are, or Laura Fortino, same thing, or Renata Fast, another hockey player, they are great at doing this stuff to just take a few seconds. And you know, it's, it's so big. It's so, it's so amazing. And it's very easy. The one other thing, it's very easy because we're all human to think 
either we've got way too big a head or the other way where we think I'm just me. Who cares? They don't, I mean, what's the big deal? It is a big deal. If it's a big deal to the kid, it doesn't matter what you, the athlete, think is a big deal or not. It doesn't matter. It is a big deal. If that five or 10-year-old thinks that meeting you is a big deal, it's a big deal. So treat it as such. I've, I've had to have that conversation with a couple of our guys um, that I saw walk by a kid. And I went in and grabbed one and come back out. And I said, you're going to learn something here. I was pissed. And took him out and there was a couple kids there and he signed some autographs and he came in after he got showered and said, I'm not that big a deal. Like he was kind of what you said. He was kind of embarrassed. You know, I'm playing with some real McCoys and uh, you know, I'm not uh, Rick Vive, right? I'm not Mark Juris. I looked at him. I said, but you're a big deal to that kid. You have to understand that. Right. Because it was almost an embarrassment. Like, these kids don't want my autograph. Well, they do. And it's important to them. So there, there's there a big difference. A there's a big difference yeah, there between is. stopping to sign an autograph because a kid wants it and walking out there with your chest puffed out, looking for kids to tell them that you're a big deal to go, you know, you should want to talk to me. If some kid thinks you're a big deal, act like you're a big deal in the nicest way, I mean, and sign the autograph and take a picture and be thankful. Because as you said a minute ago, Don, you know what? If you are, if that is you and some kid thinks you're a stinking big deal, it's for a very short time and you better do it because you know what? There's going to come a day when you're going to be wishing people thought you were a big deal. I was going to say, hang on to it. I'll tell you if we could uh, Bobby Hulsbo's sons uh, played for us when we had the Mott's Camados in Flamborough, Rockton. And he came to a game in Georgetown one night. And Bobby Hull is famous for making the bus wait, much to the chagrin of the Chicago Blackhawk players, because he always made sure he signed every autograph. I mean, every one of them. And if the bus had to wait an hour, Bobby Hull, who is a, a lot of things, but he, he knew his group, and he would sign everything. And his boys were playing that night, and I happened to be on the bench for some unknown reason, but I was talking to him between the first and second period and uh, outside the dressing room in, the, in Georgetown Arena, and it's it's like Harry Hall Arena seats up to one side at that time. And This little kid come up with a Chicago Blackhawk hat, and I was, you know, had a sports jacket and tie on at the time. That was tradition back then, and said, Mr. Hall, can I get your autograph when I and Big Bob sat beside me. I said, this is Mr. Hall. Oh, he says, okay, Mr. Hall, can I get your autograph? Bobby looked at the son. He said, son, what's your dad's name? And he told him. And he put it in your name. And he wrote it to both of them. Because he was pretty sure the kid that was like six had no idea who Bobby Hall was. But the dad had sent him up. And he, he in, in that arena or in our arena, he never, ever said no. Because he knew who he was. And he knew it was important. So... Good guys for him. Get it, really get it. And, and yes, good for them. Good for him. Let us take a very quick break. Not what we were going to talk about today, but it's, uh, I'm glad we did because it's, uh, you know, I, I, again, I hope that I, I wish I could almost teach a class in it and, and not that I'm qualified to teach a class in it, but just to do what you do and say, I don't care what you think. I don't care how much of a rush. If you add up all the autographs you're going to sign, it's going to be two minutes. Surely you can squeeze two minutes into your day. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys, among other things, this uh, puts this right in his wheelhouse, this next topic. Don, we have heard that a number of NHL teams are toying with the idea of having multiple, maybe many games outdoors this year since they can't get too many fans, if any fans, into an indoor building. The Boston Bruins, Carolina Hurricanes, Dallas Stars, LA Kings, Nashville Predators, and Pittsburgh Penguins are all exploring the option of playing multiple games outdoor this season. What do you think about that idea? I think it's creative. Um, I think people will go. But if you look at the football stadium, and who knows? I mean, this all might change, especially in the U.S. if they get multiple vaccinations. And uh, I, I would... My prediction will be as soon as about four people in the U.S. get vaccinated, they'll think everything's fine and fill the stadiums again. But but if, in fact, they can, in short order, get, you know, a couple hundred million vaccinated and it's a little more safe, I think uh, you'd see more people go to outdoor stadiums. I mean, there is evidence, and me being no scientist, um, that being outside is a lot better than being inside. Um I think it's creative and they need the revenue. So yes and yes, they can. Yes and yes to both of those things. I I used to be a little skeptical about the outdoor games. I remember they had one in Vegas years ago and it it didn't go nearly as well, but who was the guy's name from Edmonton? Is it Craig? Uh, That is the NHL czar on outdoor ice. But you know, when they can make, when they have snow making machines that can make snow when it's 40 degrees out, they can probably keep the quality of ice much better now than they could before. But, you know, LA's on the list, so you kind of go, okay, so that might be creative. But, you know what, good for them for being creative because they, they need people. Somebody's got to pay the bills. He, so I'm not a fan of the outdoor games. I was once upon a time. I thought they were amazing. The first year they had one in Edmonton when it was Edmonton and the Canadians in the Heritage Classic and it was a trillion below zero and Gretzky and all those guys came back and Guy Lafleur and all them. And then the year they had it in Buffalo with the Penguins and the Sabres and it was snowing and Crosby scored on the shootout in overtime. That was great. But as with everything, you stumble on something good and then you just squeeze the gizzards out of the goose that laid the golden egg. And so they've overdone it. My thought is, Don, even with that, if you suddenly have... 10 or 15 or 18 or 25 outdoor games this year for the reasons you specified that you need the revenue. The problem you're going to have is I think, will you not make it so that no one will ever, ever need to see an outdoor game ever again so that that revenue stream is now officially gone? I don't think they care. I mean, I think if it, if it ends up being the survival and I haven't, you didn't mention Toronto's name, but they, they clearly run where um, um, the Reds play and the Argos play. They have an outdoor stadium. Not that, the, tra- the Canadian easier. teams, sorry to interrupt, the Canadian teams are not apparently applying because of the rules they can't anyway. So it wouldn't even make a difference with the outdoor ones. So the Canadian teams right now, it's a no. All right, fair enough for that. I mean, depending on vaccine and everything else, I mean, that may change come April. I don't think they're taking anything off the table. And you know what? If that's the end of the outdoor games, so be it. I mean, I was in Edmonton. I flew to Edmonton for those games because my friend Pat LaForge was president. I went out and stayed at his place and went to those two games. And that was very unique. And boy, was it cold. 
talking about getting hit with a, one of those orange street, street uh, hockey balls. I mean, oh, that was cold, <laughs> but it was very unique that the uh, uh, is it Commonwealth Stadium um, in Edmonton. In Edmonton, yep. I forget what it is. It was jammed. And I looked up at the top because I was, I had a, uh, I had a seat that I could walk inside and get a cup of tea if I wanted to. And I looked up and I got thinking, those people will never move again. They're frozen to death. But because uh, I mean, the, the stadium was full because it was pretty exciting with the Fleur and Gretzky and everything else. If this means it's the end of the outdoor games, that might be one of the unintended consequences of COVID-19 that they can't sell them. Maybe they back off and only have one a year. Maybe they only have a heritage game, make it more special, make it the all-star game. But I think, you know, these, some of these teams are looking at survival. And if that's what it takes, then you know what? Have at it. Yeah, I, um, I, was, in, I was interested in a couple of the names. Um, I don't think Boston is at risk of needing to survive, but, you know, who knows? Um, and I wouldn't think that Pittsburgh, Carolina, yeah, I could see Carolina, maybe Dallas, I don't know, Nashville. Nashville's a pretty good hockey market now. Like some of these, I, I, it's not even so much, Don, the survival part of it. It's some of the teams that are on this. I'm like, do we really want to see a lot of outdoor games in Carolina, Dallas, LA, and to some degree, Nashville? Uh, and here's why I say that as good as the ice maker is and and you're right the guy's name is Craig Dave Craig or Dan Dan Craig I think is his name Dan Craig um, yeah. uh as as great as he is at this now you play enough games in warm enough weather and you're going to end up with some ruts in the ice and you're going to end up with guys getting catching a rut and blowing out a knee or something is it worth it maybe maybe you roll the dice on that one and say we believe that we'll be okay but i go back to that game with Mm. who were they playing when uh, the Capitals were playing against the Penguins when Sidney Crosby got caught in a rut and got his head down and got run over? And how long was he out for? A year with that thought to be a concussion? So, you know, you're running a risk if you do this. Maybe it works out to be great, but you're running a risk for sure. Well, I think, I I mean, it's it's the fastest game in the world outside of auto racing and and perhaps horse racing. But, uh, I mean, with athletes, and and there are going to be risks, and there are risks inside the building as well. So they got to calculate them, and I'm sure they looked at it and went, well, you know what, there's going to be some things we don't enjoy about this, but we're going to have to do it to make this thing work. I mean, I've been to two outdoor games. So this was good enough to take me to the January 1st game, the uh, New Year's game in uh, Michigan. And the Leafs and Detroit Red Wings played. It snowed the whole bloody game. Mm-hmm. But nobody left. It was pretty cool. But you're right. Some of the shine's gone off that, you know, the new car smell is kind of gone from that thing. But I think they need it for survival. And, you know, if they can play them in Dallas and stuff like that, then... If that's what it has has to be, then that's what it has to be, I guess. I it doesn't offend me. I think it'll wear off, but it doesn't offend me. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, look, we've got to take a break. I don't even know if there's gonna be an NHL season. So who knows if we're gonna be talking about outdoor games because right now they can't seem to come to a deal. And so, you know, wait and see what happens. But um it's an interesting one that's being thrown out there. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on nine hundred CHML. Don Robertson in studio, not in studio, Don Robertson talking to me in, I'm not even in studio. Don, it must be getting close to uh, Christmas time. The brain is beginning to officially fade. 
Uh, Don Robertson from home, talking to me at home. Studio has no part of this. Ben is in studio. But now that we've clarified that. Yeah, Ben's a good man. Ben is, you know, Ben's been at the studio since the start of this thing. The fact that he has not yet caught COVID is quite frankly a miracle. But he's been down there every single day chugging away. Uh, We, you know, anyone who wants to uh, start a, what's that? Does he leave? Nope. Or is he hermetically sealed? Anyone who wants to start a GoFundMe page to raise money for uh, for Ben's you know for Ben's future to thank him for all of his hard work, I, I'd start a GoFundMe. Might only raise nine dollars, but um, you know what? We'll give it a try. Uh, Don, there was a firing in the NFL today, and the reason I bring this up, I mean, you're a guy who's been on probably both sides of the firing equation. You've certainly fired guys, and I don't know if you've ever been fired as a coach. But here's why Greg Williams was fired today because yesterday. On the last play of the game, he was the uh, the New York Jets defensive coordinator. And on the last play of the game, he decided that they were going to run a blitz, which left a receiver open, which allowed the Raiders to score a touchdown, which allowed the Jets to lose again. But because it looks like because of that one play, because of that one bad call, now they've had a terrible season, I get it, but the timing of it makes it abundantly clear that it's got something to do with that. Is that a good time to fire someone right in the wake of a terrible loss when you're the guy who is being pointed at as the cause? Is that a good time to do it because, hey, it satisfies the fans and sends a message? Or is that the worst time because, you know, how can you fire a guy for one call? Well, first of all, you have to look at it from the GM's point of view or the owner's point of view, right? And uh, they're probably going to gas the guy anyway because, they, you know, they couldn't be the flag football team. And by all accounts, it was probably a really dumb decision when all you had to do was neutralize everybody and stop them from scoring so you can so you can actually win. The, the decision to fire him was likely made about two weeks ago. And this probably tipped the, pardon me, tipped the scales. And then you can now say to your fans, here's Pardon me. Here's what we're going to do. Anybody that screws up like that and prevents us from winning, we have to show the players that we actually care about winning. Why don't we, why don't we send him down the plank? So from a GM standpoint and something that was probably going to be done anyways, what's it matter? The guy's going to get paid. And by all football accounts, it was not a very well-conceived idea. That is what, uh, what he wanted to do was say, you know what? I know how to do this and I'm going to prove to you guys. I know what I'm doing and it backfired. So out you go. I think you're right. I think it was an ill-conceived idea. It was not well, well thought out at the same time when you're now winless in the season uh, and you're probably working 19 hours a day, like most NFL coaches at a certain point, you've probably gone a little bit goofy. And so, you know, to, to, to hang a guy's job on a bad play, um, look, the, the, the defensive back who got beaten on that one, you could say, look, you're cut because you were so badly beaten by that receiver that even if the coach made a bad call, you know, you were awful. I, I look around and I look on that team and I think there's between coaches and players, there's more than a few dozen people you could fire. I just, I just wonder about the timing always. Anytime, if a, if a, if a coach loses a game, if a coach's team isn't playing well and suddenly they lose nine, nothing in hockey, 
Is that really the moment to fire him? Maybe. Maybe it is. I mean, if no. it's if it's still early in the season, but if you're if you're out of the playoffs, you're near the end of the season, you're just going to ride it out. Why fire him then? Wait till the end of the year. Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you from a GM and, and uh, an owner's perspective is that if you've already made the decision, and they probably had, the Jets have already decided. Like these guys are going. This list of people are going to be gone which consequently means the rest of the cast of characters is going to be gone. If the guy serves up on a silver platter, a reason to do it early and you can do it, you do it right. Like he probably, he's probably sitting on the sidelines going, you know what? There's about as much chance I'm going to come back next year and be the defensive coach of the New York jets as I am fly the space shuttle. So I'm doing it. This is my call. I'm making the decision. If they want to gas me, gas me. And they serve it up to the GM. They serve it up to the coach and go, okay, maybe he's tired of working 19 hours a day and goes, all right, that just, you know, that just kind of cut the cord. I'm out. It may have been a calculated decision on everybody's part, but if you haven't won yet, there's not a hell of, hell of a lot of choices that you're going to have. And there's not much chance you're coming back anyways. So why don't you go out in your own terms? Maybe it made it easy for everybody. And maybe, you know, like he, if it works, he doesn't keep his job anyway. I don't know. No, uh, we've seen it before. I mean, we've seen these cases before where you have someone who has just been a terrible, terrible game, a terrible loss. I was quite frankly expecting, and it's not too late. I mean, the day still has time and, um, I was expecting that the head coach, I can't even think of his name right now, the head coach of the uh, uh, Los Angeles Chargers, who lost 45 nothing, was it, to New England yesterday, and they looked unorganized, disorganized, and they looked disinterested, and like I, I, I thought he was gone. I thought that he was going to finish the game and they would have the U-Haul already cleaning out his office before the game was even over. But on the other hand, you know, that goes to my argument. Is, is that really the moment that you say, all right, we can't get worse or you're already out of the playoffs. Do you say, let's give the guy a chance to see if he can redeem himself. If only Don, we got to go to break. If only for this reason, these guys, especially NFL, but I think every coach now in every pro sport, you are putting in all your hours. I mean, professional coaches now are doing nothing but coaching. There's no social life. There's no family life. Sure. And I know they're being paid well, but at the very least, allow them to try, even if you're going to do what you say, even if you're done at the end of the year, allow them to try to, if you're not still competing, if you're out of the playoffs, rehabilitate themselves. So maybe they can get a job for the following year, unless you hate them, unless they've done something that makes it so you don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt. But otherwise, you know, like maybe, maybe that was the worst moment that he could have had. Give him a chance to try and at least say to someone else, you know, He's not that bad a coach because this is now what you're left with for Greg Williams. Well, they, may, anyway. they may not hate them, but they sure didn't do what he hired them to do. That is true. That is, that is when you haven't won a game, that is very, very true. Uh, quiz question this evening. Last chance to call in the Scoville scale measures what? 905-645-3221. Star 9900. Give Ben a call. Give him your name. Give him your guess. Don Robertson, thanks as always for doing this today. Really appreciate your time. Talk to you next Monday. Scott, I have one piece of advice. Please. Suze was listening. 
and I suggested to you that you get a vacuum cleaner for home, not a good plan. No, no, you'll get the, uh, the bucket to clean up the blood then if I do. Don't try it. Uh, bad <laughs> well, thank you, Sue. Good, night. Thank good you. advice. Talk to you soon. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.